All right, welcome to the MindWorks Podcast. Today we have a special guest. He just wants to interview some questions about what it is like in the mental health field. And he's obviously interviewing me, a mental health professional. So if you want to introduce yourself, you go ahead. Yeah, so my name is Nathan. I'm a first-year mental health counseling student. I'm really excited to get to interview Andre. I have a lot of questions, and I'm really excited to, you know, find out more about, you know, his experience in the field. So I'm going to start with my first question. Go ahead. So how long have you been a mental health professional, and do you have any specific clinical focus? If so, what is it? So, yeah, uh, I've been a mental health professional for about seven, about seven, going on to eight years by now at this point. Uh, My... Specific clinical focus, do you mean by, like, what's my demographic? Like, what type of people do I work with? Or do you mean, like, what type of interventions do I use in my clinical practice? Well, both. All right, well, (laughs) so I typically work with, like, many different types of age groups of individuals. I work with children, adolescents, young adults, adults, and I've worked with older adults as well. Um, And usually my therapeutic intervention that I do use is cognitive behavioral therapy, but I also take like a very multi-dimensional approach within my work. Mm. So I, you know, it really all depends on the client and the presenting problems as to like what's going on, what's happening, and what I feel is probably the best fit when it comes to um, their problems and the interventions that could go good with their, their issues. Like I guess just one example, um, if somebody's having like, I don't know, like let's say coming in with issues with like OCD, like obsessive compulsive disorder, right? I would take more of a multidimensional approach within that type of client because they may have issues with, uh, you know, past traumas and things like that. So therefore, I'll probably use like a psychoanalytic approach and then maybe move on to a more, you know, understanding humanistic approach and then work on the CBT. So you kind of use like different interventions to build up rapport with the client so you can open them up a little bit more and then they could talk. and, And also, I'm very heavy with psychoeducation. Like, I teach a lot within my work with individuals, so I provide, like, knowledge. And the reason for that is because I'm also a teacher of psychology at CUNY schools. So, therefore, I'm able to provide, like, up-to-date knowledge and research. And honestly, to tell you the truth, that's one thing I'll probably recommend probably, like, you know, upcoming mental health counselors is to probably, like, think about teaching. Yeah. I mean, if you you have, uh, like, an undergraduate, uh, you know, degree in, like, psychology, like you can teach psychology if you have an undergrad in psych. What what's your do you, what's your undergraduate degree? Yeah, in psych, and I went to Queens, Queens CUNY. Yeah. Oh, I went to Queens. Nice, yeah. nice. Yeah. So like, yeah, you um basically yeah, if you want to always get back into the field, the best way to learn, and honestly, in this field, you're always gonna be learning. Like I learn something new every day, working with different cultures, working with different people. You're always learning something. So just to like teach on top of that, hmm. it's impeccable like you'll be like a impeccable therapist working with all all different types of people and things like that so yeah can can i ask what classes you teach yeah i teach like abnormal psychology i Mm -hmm. teach i've taught human sexuality i teach personality psychology i teach psych 101 i teach human development i teach like uh sensation and perception i teach research methods so i teach like a lot of stuff it really all depends on what cuny wants to throw me uh yeah really like every semester it kind of changes but typically they like to stick me with the personality psych and the abnormal psych and the psych 101 those are the main three ones that i teach but only because i've expressed that those are the ones that i love to teach yeah yeah, yeah. those are the most interesting ones especially personality psychology and i think like if you're going to become a mental health counselor, definitely take a personality psych class absolutely that's really important like i would definitely say that's a good one yeah, absolutely. All right, so I'm going to move on to the next question. Yeah, what, sure. What led you choose a career in mental health? 
counseling? Well, it's interesting because when I was uh, an undergrad, I was first a business major. Yeah. So then I took like, yeah, I took like business classes. I wasn't too fond of it. And then there was this one day I took like a psych 101 class and this one teacher told me, um, she was like, you know, your, your mind is the most powerful tool that you can ever like utilize. And I was like, what the hell do you mean by that? <laughs> and she was just like, well, you can obviously like shape the way that you think about things and the way that you see things. And like, you simply just have to tell yourself that. So I was taking like this geology class and like this geology class, I hated it. Oh, I feel yeah. like the first, uh, I feel like the first test, I didn't do so well on it. And then I decided like, you know what, maybe it's my perspective. Maybe the fact that I keep telling myself I hate this class and this class is boring is probably the reason why I'm failing it. So therefore, she told me all this thing about changing perspective. And I was actually able to, like, tell myself every day, like, I actually love this class. Like, I want to do good in this class. Like, I want to go home and read the textbook. And I use, like, excitement, not just, like, talking, but body language, too. You know what I mean? Like, I want to do this. And then I started utilizing her techniques. And by, by then, you know, it. second test and the third test, I passed. And I ended up getting, like, a B plus in that. So nice. I, I, yeah, I maneuvered it. And, I, and I, <laughs> you know, I learned about plate tectonics, oh, yeah. uh, tectonic shifts, rock, different type of rocks and stuff like that. Stuff that has nothing to do with the field. Yeah. It's like one of those elective classes that they make you take because, mm. I don't know, maybe they want money or something. But, yeah. like, you know, it's something that uh, I had to, like, sort of do and challenge myself. So that's so I, I saw that and I thought about that. I'm like, maybe I could use this sort of technique to, like, help others. Mm. And also when I was younger, I always used to, like, listen to people. Like, I was always, like, that person that friends would come to to, like, talk to about their mm. problems and stuff. So it was kind of like almost like a natural knack I had for like listening to people and their problems, which then I said, you know what? Therapy sounds like something I should be doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Geology was also my least favorite class. <laughs> yeah. It was the worst. Yeah. I could imagine. Oh my God. Yeah. So yeah. What theories guide your professional practice? I think we already touched upon that. You said you use like well, a lot of CBT. Well, those are the interventions, but theories oh. are different, right? Like, so interventions are a little different than theories. Theories I use are like existential theories. Mm -hmm. I, I talk about, you know, like, I, I think a big another big part about the field of mental health counseling, which is very important, is that this field is actually like very philosophical because, mm -hmm. you know, you're dealing with like so many different people. So like it's always good to keep up on philosophical knowledge as well. Like, you know, ideas of like free will versus determinism, talking about existential philosophy, psychoanalytic theories, things like that. These all help play a role in helping you as an individual, like a therapist, kind of like help others. Because not everyone's going to align with some of these theories that you use. So when you have like an abundance, like a backpack or like a toolkit of like therapeutic theories that you can open when you meet a client for the first time, that's actually extremely helpful. So you want to like do something like that. It's, it's actually really interesting. So I like I told you before, multidimensional, multiple theories, looking like learning about different theories, open up your mind to different avenues of knowledge is very helpful. Wow. OK. Yeah, yeah that's very interesting. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I'm also a huge fan of existential therapy. Yeah, Irvin Yalom. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, uh, <laughs> I actually have one of his... Uh, let me... Actually, I could grab it real quick. I'll show you guys. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, always, I always show this book off because um, this is actually one of the greatest books that most therapists should actually read. And in this one, I actually met him. You met him? Yeah, I met him, and he signed wow. the first page. Oh, that's so... As you can see, it's, like, signed uh, by Irvin Yalom. Uh, the Gift of Therapy, very great book. I'll definitely recommend that uh, if you're getting into mental health counseling, this is a must read, right? Because it talks about going into the here and now in the therapy sessions, and it talks about different like uh, in existential interventions. So that's a theory that you can use that might be helpful. Yeah, Yalom, Yalom's really cool. He's really out there and mm -hmm. not very unique. Yeah, he's an author. Yeah. <laughs> and he does the therapy thing. Yeah, it's very yeah. cool. 
So next question is, what is your personal theory of how clients change over time? So my personal theory about how clients change over time, it's, it's, you know, once again, it's, it's, it's tough to say one approach because it's very subjective. Mm-hmm. I can definitely say that in my field of work, I have seen many clients change over time. I, you know, one thing that's coming to my head is just like when I work with like, you know, and I'm not trying to be sexist or anything here, guys. All right. So I just want to say like when I work with like females, for example, I notice that a lot of times they, they lack assertiveness and like I help them sort of become more assertive within their lives. Mm-hmm. And I see the impact it has and I see the changes when they start utilizing more assertive techniques. But, you know, you, it, it's a whole realm of things to explore. Like you have to explore their personalities. You have to explore, you know, like what type of individual are they like, you know, the personalities you know, like, are they the judgmental type, perceptual types, you know, like, there's so many different things within the realm of personality that are important to like really navigate through to help somebody uh, change. So I think um, I I just noticed, yeah, uh, so that's with that assertiveness, uh, with depression, or anxiety, I've definitely noticed that one thing I'm going to say about anxiety is that I don't think you any therapist or anybody can cure anxiety, I actually think anxiety is something that could become alleviated. You know, like um, you alleviate your anxieties because when you look at the psychological personality research studies, you notice that neuroticism within, you know, the big five personality traits plays a huge role in how people live their lives. It's almost like the neurotic types are like it's almost a part of them kind of to some degree. And it's just more about managing that anxiety and sort of alleviating it by using, you know, coping mechanisms, the cognitive behavioral therapy uh, challenging beliefs, challenging biases, you know, as a therapist, it's good to call your clients out sometimes, <laughs> you know, you kind of have to call it out. Like whenever you see they're doing something wrong, you kind of have to say, Hey, what do you think about what you're doing? You know, yeah. it's kind of like, uh, something that you kind of have to do. And it's a good thing to try to do. Um, my personal theory about clients change. I do think people can change hundred percent. I've seen it. Uh, you know, a lot of times people say you can't teach an old dog, uh, an old dog, new tricks, but I do believe that sometimes, you know, if an old dog is motivated to change, they will change. <laughs> yeah, I kind of like how you like, you know, navigate, you know, conversations with people through like their personalities. Is that like a personal like theory or like a personal sort of intervention? Yeah. You know, they don't teach you about like and in, in when I was in Hunt, like I went to Hunter, I graduated from Hunter with my master's and they didn't really teach us about the they didn't really go hone in into personality psychology and like mm. the benefits of like knowing about personality psychology when it comes to helping people. So therefore, like I throughout my work as I was teaching personality psychology and I'm helping people, I noticed within that 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 flow of knowledge that I was taking the things from the class mm. and putting it into the therapy work okay. and kind of like telling clients like, hey, like, you know, like you're pretty extroverted. So what provokes people? are extroverted you know and like when you're an extrovert even physiologically you have like a lower sense of stimulation within your system so this is why you seek things out you seek going out more often you seek bigger social groups you seek more stimulation it's as if like the introverts are more of the normal type of individuals because their central nervous systems are kind of like already stimulated enough Mm. that they they kind of say things like i have a social battery and i can only be out for so long so it's like very interesting when you like psychoeducate people on like those personality things. And I think that's why it's very important to know personality psychology when you are a mental health counselor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. All right. So I'm going to move on to the next question. Yeah. What therapeutic techniques 
Did I ask that already? No, you could ask that one. I mean, we kind of went through it, but I could revisit it. Yeah, so what therapeutic techniques and counseling skills do you use with clients? Once again, for that one, it's very multidimensional. So it really depends on the client. Typically, I do use CBT heavily. I realize that CBT kind of goes, it flows with a lot of people's problems a lot of times. Mm -hmm. But as I'm working with individuals, I'll take that toolbox at a certain point within the therapeutic process and utilize it at the right moments. I do a lot of psychoanalysis. I think psychoanalysis is important. Because it's, you know, you have to, like, explore the person's past. You have to explore their past conditions. Because these conditions do play a huge role in people's lives. I think yeah. once you start becoming aware of your conditions, then you could be more motivated to change and more able to change. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right. And in what ways do you utilize multicultural counseling com competencies in your work? So in what ways do you utilize multicultural counseling competencies in your work? I, um, so... When it comes to multicultural, it's very important to be like very open to people's uh, ways of being. I, and I think that's like, I personally feel like that's like the best uh, um, thing about the field is how much you really learn through multicultural, like working with people from different cultures and backgrounds. I work right. with people from like, you know, uh, Muslim cultures, from like uh, the Chinese cultures, mm -hmm. the Christians, the Catholics, the Jews. You know, I work with so many different uh, groups of individuals like yeah. it's it's a very interesting thing to um, be very multicultural in in this field of work and I know some counselors they want to just target specific groups and demographics mm -hmm. that's fine but me myself as a counselor I've always been more open to like wanting to know more about different cultures and like do the multicultural counseling because it, it enhances your knowledge and you learn so much Absolutely. like like I learned so much about like like, I think I had, like, a client once in the past who was, like, literally, like, two years in from China. Mm. And they were telling me all about, like, the Chinese government and all these things wow. that they do and, like, how they're censored in so many ways and stuff like that. I'm like, damn, that lifestyle is so different. Like, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, like, that, you know, <laughs> that's probably why you have, like, the issues you are facing, you know, yeah. it's because probably some sort of cultural uh, effect, you know. And then you come here into the United States and it's, like, all about, like, you know, freedom and individualism. Mm -hmm. And it's, like, a whole different scenario. So how does that affect an individual's mental health is an interesting right. question. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, you find it interesting to, like, learn about different people from different backgrounds because they have different experiences, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's so. really good, though. It's, it's, a, it's a really good, uh, you know, place to learn. That's what I'm trying to say. This field... It's like you never stop learning. I've learned so much about all different religions, all different cultures. It's, it's very awesome. Yeah. So how do you see yourself as an advocate in the mental health profession? <laughs> how do I, so I'm, I, I've been doing more advocacy work, I would say, lately for, okay. for like the kids. Right. Yeah. Um, I work with kids. So I'm very like, uh, you know, uh, pro kids mental health. Uh, you know, I, I've been actually speaking out at events and things like that. I did a recent event with the Gays Against Groomers, and I'm actually rocking one of their shirts, you know, God Save the Children. Uh, basically, it's all about, you know, uh, going against the indoctrination, sexualization, sterilization of kids and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, so it's an organization that I really uh, believe in, and I, and I agree with their, their takes on gender ideology and things like that, and how a lot of this stuff is being implemented in schools, because I, as a mental health counselor, see the effects it's having on these kids. Okay. Not just as a mental health counselor, but as a teacher as well. A lot of these kids come into the classroom, like in college, like college students coming into the classroom saying like, oh, you know, like, uh, you know, um, uh, what is it? Uh, if you're if you're a man, you, you can have a vagina. And if you're a woman, you can have a penis. And I'm just like, 
are you kidding me? Like, that's not, that's not science, you know? And that's, that's one thing that I teach is about science. So if I'm advocating, how do I see myself as an advocate is that I advocate for science. I advocate for truth. I advocate for like the reality of things that are, I don't, I don't really believe in like gender ideology and in, in telling people like, Hey, you can, uh, you know, call yourself this if you want to be that, you know, like if you want to be a they, them, you know, I don't really agree with all that stuff, you know, but you know, I don't agree with it. Doesn't mean I don't respect it. You know, like if, if some, if I have a client that comes to me and they want to identify as they, them, whatever the case is, I'd be like, okay, that's, that's what you want to identify as, but let's talk about it. Let's explore it. But I'm not going to like judge and be like, you're an idiot for using that, those pronouns, but I'm just going to say like, let's explore that. Like, why is that? goes back to the previous question about multicultural competency, right? You have to have that competence to understand people. If this is what they want to believe. That's their belief. That's right. like, and you kind of have to like learn how to respect that. Right. But then when you start pushing it onto kids, that's when I kind of like as an individual or an advocate, that's where I draw the line. Like, don't tell kids and confuse them about their genders. That's not healthy. And I've seen the repercussions of that in kids that I work with. And, you know, they, you know, you know gender dysphoria is a real thing, right? So saying to people, hey, you could be whatever you want, even in your gender, that could be an issue. And for kids especially, because kids cognitively, they're thinking black and white. Mm. You know, if you study like um, Piaget's, uh, cognitive development theories you know that in that age group from like six from like five to like ten it's a lot of concrete thinking that's going on so kids can interpret this stuff and take it for what it actually is like okay so you're saying if i can be a girl then i am a girl but then you're lying to that person because a female is a biological uh woman okay. a, a, a woman is a biological female you know so it's like that, that causes people confusion, and that's what I, I'm advocating for currently in the field of counseling. The only reason why I'm really advocating for it is because I see the effects it's having on kids and con how it's confusing them. So, yeah. Yeah, I also saw on your um, podcast a few episodes that you're an advocate for, like, men's mental health as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I also advocate for men's mental health. I do believe, you know, uh, Kevin and I, we, we definitely work with a lot of, like, you know, we talk about men's mental health as well. But recent times, the bigger issue seems to be the kids now. <laughs> so we've been honing in on that a lot because a lot of discussions have been going on in the political world and everything like that about that. Yeah, of course, men's mental health is definitely important as well. And I definitely advocate for that. I do. You know, I, when I work with men, it's definitely a different um, sort of uh, approach. And it's definitely a different sort of um, feeling with working with men, because, you know, as men, I think we're really like conditioned. And that's another sort of like thing of indoctrination to some degree is like, as a man, you should be powerful, you know, like you shouldn't have feelings, right? You shouldn't have emotions, some, some Jedi shit, right? Like on some, um, you know, but that's not the, that's not the, that's not healthy for a lot of times. And I noticed a lot of men come to me with anger issues, you know? So that's typically what I work with when it comes to working with men. Yeah. And I think that's a great segue into the next question. What do you see as a current issue or current issues in the profession that we're currently facing? Subjectivity. I think that like a lot of things in the world are becoming very subjective and that's a problem. I think there has to be more evidence-based objectivity within the field, especially when it comes to the ideas of, uh, you know, gender ideology and stuff like that. I think that that stuff is an ideology. It's not a science. Mm. Uh, and it, like it's being pushed onto people and people are, you know, under the guise of inclusivity are trying to like really push this sort of stuff onto people. I think the problem, I think that can lead to bigger problems. I think the APA, the American Psychological Association, needs to sit down and really have a discussion about the issues of gender dysphoria, um, you know, because I feel like gender dysphoria is like, a, is like a problem of a segue into the bigger problem. 
and you know, which can be like transgenderism, you know, and I think transgenderism, if you work with transgender clients, which I do, you notice a lot of times that there's some sort of like, there's a lot of things that can be off with these individuals a lot of times. And, you know, for me to say that you're probably going to call me a bigot or something like that, but I'm not, I'm not transphobic. I actually work with individuals that are trans uh, gender and whatever the case is. And they're perfectly, you know, I'm all for it as long as you're not hurting anybody or pushing your ideology onto kids, mm. you know, but like the thing is, is that when you look at these individuals, you see more of a complex issue, you see complexities, mm-hmm. you know, and when you look at, when you teach abnormal psychology, what is abnormal psychology? Ab- abnormality is deviant from the norm. So like when something's deviant from the norm, it could definitely cause pressure onto those individuals, right? But like, it's, I think it's up to you as the individual to take responsibility and understand those consequences of taking on such an identity. You know, and I don't think somebody is, you know, is born out of the womb saying, yeah, I'm a transgender individual. You know, I mean, something that you probably feel, but then that's the confusion. And they label that confusion as a mental health disorder which is the gender dysphoria. So I don't believe in something called the gender affirming care either, which I think is like, I, I, I think there's a difference between respecting people's, if they want to use the pronouns, but then gender affirming care is like affirming that individual, like, hey, if you feel like you're a boy and you're a girl, then you must be a boy. You have to be a boy, right? Like that's the only way that you'll heal. And you have some therapists going to people's parents expressing this, saying, would you rather have a dead son or an alive daughter. And that's kind of like bogus to say to parents because parents are then put on the spot. Like, what do I do? And I've had parents come in here all the time expressing confusion as to like, listen, when it comes to listening to professionals and stuff like that, like, what do I do? You know, it's kind of like, well, I think you got to critically think a little bit about this situation and really think about it. But that's like my, my whole issue with that. And I think that's within the field right now, currently, I think that is one of the biggest things. I think that is one of the biggest crises, and that's why I continue to talk on it because I see it happening in schools, putting up all the flags, putting up all these things. I see that happening. Kids coming to me saying, hey, you know, my teacher gave me a pride flag the other day. And, oh, what'd you do with it? I burnt it. It's like, why would you burn the flag? Like, it's just a flag, you know? And like, why, why do people have these feelings? 11-year-olds. <laughs> so right. that's like one of the things I'm noticing within the field, and that's why I'm speaking up on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So my next question is, what do you like most and least about, you know, <laughs> so the least billing and paperwork, oh, the, the that's thing. Fair. notes, <laughs> treatment plans, all that stuff. I hate it. Oh, yeah. uh, but the best thing I love about my job is talking to the people. That's mm-hmm. the best part is just having a session, having a one on one with somebody, you know, honing in and, and really just understanding the individual and talking about their feelings and talking about their life circumstances. You know, a lot of times, you know, I've had clients that I've been working with for such a long time. And it's because like our, our, just our conversations, you know, it's like you learn so much and like we're learning off of one another and it's just, it just becomes more of like a journey with people. Like it's like a journey that I take with some people, you know? Yeah. So and yeah. Working with the kids. That's the yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I honestly, my, my favorite group to work with are adolescents. Like I mm-hmm. like working with adolescents because, um, you know, like, I, I think I'm young, so they see me as, like, a young counselor, and then they're like, oh, my God, this guy's so cool. I'm like, yeah, man. Like, uh, so I, for the adolescents, I feel like I serve more as, like, a role model as well, like, a positive role model. And parents have always expressed that to me, like, oh, like, you know, ever since my son started talking to you, stop hanging out with the gang members and stuff like that down yeah. the street. They, you know, he stopped, uh, he started talking to more people, started socializing more. It's as if, like, I kind of, like, model sort of, like, just, you know, this is, like, your personality, you know, another thing about counseling is like your personality makes a big difference. Okay. That's why I would say like take a personality test. Like usually it's like the ENFJs and the INFJs that make the best competent counselors. 
like typically. I think yeah, even I if think you, I'm yeah. ENFJ. You're ENFJ too? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there you go. So that's probably why you're in the field. You probably have a, <laughs> a, a knack for it naturally. Yeah. All right. So how did your training best and least prepare you mm-hmm. for the realities of being a mental health professional? So my training, uh, well, so I started working at a clinic in Jackson Heights, Queens. Um, and, you know, the, super, the supervisors there were, you know, I was a little confused about how they were running the clinic because the supervisors there were Caucasian. Mm. So you have Caucasian supervisors supervising uh, minority people, and then you're in a minority you know, based area. So I never really understood the concepts of that. Uh, but basically, maybe some a little bit more cultural competence there could have been helpful. Mm. You know, like maybe having like a Latino supervisor within your your group practice. If you know that you're in an area dominantly uh, right. uh, Hispanics and 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 multicultural stuff. Uh, so that's one thing that I think like you know having those supervisors. They were great supervisors. I loved them. They gave me a lot of great advice, great feedback. Everything was great. I have no complaints about it. But I just think more so of the cultural aspect. For example, I remember I had a, a client who was like this fifteen uh, year old. Oh no, he was fourteen years old, and he was a Hispanic Latino client. And you know he was smoking weed like you know with his friends after school and stuff like that. And then, you know, when I told that to the supervisor, oh, my God, like, you got to you got to call the parents. You got to tell ACS. I'm like, 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 no, bro, like you're bugging, (laughs) you're bugging, like, you know, so I'm just like, all right, that's where you're lacking in the cultural competence, because, you know, being like a minority growing up in New York City public schools, you see that all over the place, especially in the Jackson Heights. area. Exactly. Especially in the Jackson Heights area. You know, it's like it's like normal to like uh, engage in that type of stuff. So I'm just like, no, I think I think you're kind of like bugging a little bit. The kids smoking (laughs) weed. I'll, I'll understand. Okay, like. Yes, it's important to tell, like, to conversate with the parents, but you have to tell the kid, like, you don't want to kill the rapport either. Mm. You know what I mean? So that's where it becomes, like, a little bit of a thin line. I mean, you know, you kind of do have to, like, help the child in some way, but only, I think, like, if it's excessive. Mm. Like, if it's happening, like, every day, then, okay, yeah, we got to talk about that. Like, you shouldn't be smoking weed every day. You're only 14 years old. What is that doing to your brain, right? I mean, psychoeducation and being, like, serious about it. I mean, like, if you're doing it, like, once a week or twice a week and you're 14, I mean, like, you know, you just got to... You got to like think about it. I mean, I've had friends from high school that have been smoking weed that smoke weed more than me and like are like in higher positions than I am or like doing greater things than me. You know what I mean? In life. So it's like when you see that, it's kind of like, does it really affect people in that negative way? I mean, to some degree, yes. But you know what I mean? It's just something that I think needs to be uh, considered, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. For sure. Yeah. All right. So what advice would you offer me? Mm -hmm. And other future counselors that are list that might be listening mm-hmm. as like a beginning counselor in training. I would definitely emphasize reading The Gift of Therapy, 100%. This is an important book to read as you get into uh, counseling. There's a lot of great advice in there. Uh, another thing I would also advise is definitely taking like a personality psychology class. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely uh, honing in on personality psychology. I think that's going to be like the biggest thing, especially with the DSM-5 because they're creating a DSM-6 that might be coming out next because oh, yeah. they're actually like putting personality more on a spectrum-based approach rather than categorical like mm-hmm. I, like it is in the dsm-5 so that's going to change up a lot of things it's going to stir up a lot of stuff so learning about the personality uh psychology is very important um what else is there being very compassionate being empathic towards others understanding that everyone has their own ways of thinking and everyone has their own ways of seeing the world learning more about perception and being more open to people's perspe- perceptions and how they identify and whatever they want to you know uh see themselves as is very important so empathy is definitely something i would definitely uh let you know to like embrace and also just 
be prepared for all that paperwork. Because <laughs> that stuff is like, you got to document, document, document everything that happens because you don't want someone coming back to you being like, hey, you told me this. And then like, no, I didn't. You have the documentation there to like prove it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, do you take notes as you're yes. speaking with clients? Yeah. yeah, me, I'm like one of those therapists that take notes during the sessions. I know some therapists just like listen. I mean, some sessions I just listen. It really depends on the client. Mm. But the reason why I like to take notes typically during the sessions because I just get it out the way. Like, I just get it. I took the notes. Okay, I talked about this. Talk about that. Talk about that. Now I don't have to do notes later. So let's continue our conversation. Let's talk about it. Do, <laughs> you know? do, do clients ever get, like, frustrated with the note taking or? Well, no, not really. I think I just typically I just, you know, I'll, sometimes I'll ask if it's okay. Like, I know that I take a lot of notes. Is that okay with you? You know, I'll just ask. You have to. It's all about communication. It's all about, you know, what Irvin Yalom says is to bring it to the here and now all the time with clients. Yeah. All right, awesome. And how is your job different from a mental health professional who isn't a counselor? Okay, so the difference between counselors and other mental health professionals like social workers, psychologists, and things like that is that actually mental health counselors, we're at the bottom of the food chain, to believe it or not. Yeah, like we actually just got rights to be able to diagnose in the state of New York uh, just like last year in June. Not this past June, but last year in 2022. Uh, two, 2021, I think it was, we got able to diagnose now legally in the state of New York. And what does that mean? That actually allowed us to be pushed further into now being pa on panels of Medicaid and Medicare. So now when you, you, before as a mental health counselor, if you wanted to credential yourself under Medicaid, you had to go through like this whole big process that was like, uh, you know, you, you couldn't get on it actually at all. Like, you know, if you wanted to run the practice and you wanted to get on Medicaid or Medicare uh, panels, you weren't able to do that. Because of the fact that we're not allowed to diagnose before pre-2021. So now that we've actually been, now that the law has passed in the state of New York that we can diagnose, now we're actually able to get on Medicaid and Medicare panels and start scaling our business practices even larger. So we're, mental health counselors are literally like, and also another thing that they need to fix <laughs> is the fact that a social worker can be your supervisor, but you can't be the supervisor for a social worker. Huh, that I didn't know. Yeah, that needs to be changed because at this point, I probably, as a licensed mental health counselor, have way more knowledge than a student social worker, right? And, like, I already know all, we know the same stuff as social workers and mental health counselors. We're literally in the same field. So I think that needs to change. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right. And now I'm going to talk to you about ethical dilemmas. So mm -hmm. can you tell me about maybe, like, two or three different ethical dilemmas that you face in your practice it can be like a day-to-day -day experience or anything specific. Uh, cancellations and, and scheduling and things like that are annoying. And I'm pretty sure a lot of therapists may agree. Like, I mean, ethical dilemma, like, you know, ch charging a cancellation fee. Mm. Like, you know, how much do you charge, right? Like, I, I charge typically, I know this is low ball, this is low, it's $50 cancellation fee that I charge typically. Okay. Um, I feel like, you know, based on what the insurance pays, it's half of that probably, typically. So the insurance companies pay like half. And then, um, you know, so like if someone cancels, that's like a waste of my time. Mm -hmm. You know, we get frustrated. Yeah. So what is your cancellation fee? I think can be an ethical dilemma on a day-to-day -day basis that a lot of therapists probably like struggle with. Uh, what's another ethical dilemma? Um, oh, man, I can't really think of too many of them. I mean, 
uh, oh, uh, this is typically like with kids, right? Like sometimes you want to help kids so much that you probably like will buy them something or, you know, buy them a book or maybe mm-hmm. like, you know, because you work with kids, you probably feel like, oh my God, this kid needs like a book or something or needs something. And let me go ahead and probably like buy it for them. They, you know, because you work with some kids that are like in poverty and stuff like that. So like an ethical dilemma is there is that the ethics is that you can't buy clients things because then it can create a dependency. Mm-hmm. But like, I'm pretty sure every social worker that works with kids has probably done that before, has gifted like a child that they work with and they purely care about out of compassion. Uh, that's an ethical dilemma, I guess, that some like many social workers and therapists probably go through on a daily basis. Um, and I guess, yeah, I guess those are the only two I could think of on top of my head, honestly. Yeah, what about when clients bring you gifts? How do you handle that? Oh, I, I take them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just like, hey, thanks, man. I agree. Thank you. I appreciate it. You know, like I've got, I gotten gifted like uh, bottles of alcohol. I gotten gifted like, uh, like during the holidays, like Christmas ornaments and uh, like, you know, like, oh, thanks for helping my kid. Like, you know, like I, I've been gifted so many different things. Um, I just take it and I, you know, I'm just like, hey, like I tell this client though, I'm like, I'm not supposed to take this like ethically wise. I'm not supposed to take the gift. But if you want to give it to me, all right, fine. What am I going to say? No, like you right. bought it for me. Like, who are you going to give it to? Right. Yeah. I mean, do you see like a, like a cultural aspect to it as well? Like certain cultures tend to give gifts more. Well, I guess cause I'm like Latino. So like the Latino Families always be giving me like the tequila, the the, uh, the like you know all the 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 liquors and the, and the once this guy brought me like a six pack of Corona. I'm like, bro, like what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, what the fuck? I swear to God, it's true. Like I got brought like you know like so I think like the Latino uh, definitely because I guess I'm Latino. Like we kind of connect more, I guess yeah, to yeah. some degree. So like uh, they bring me stuff, and it's usually them that gift me. Uh, different things like um i remember also once someone got me like an adidas gift card and assumed i, was, I played soccer because like i'm latino yeah. but i'm like, <laughs> man, like whatever i'll use this for some workout shorts or whatever but yeah but yeah that's awesome i i'm all, right. all done with my questions and like yeah. I, I really appreciate this thank you so much no problem no problem i, I really learned a lot yeah and, yeah. Um, yeah i really really truly appreciate this no problem thanks a lot man it was nice in, being interviewed by you and thanks for the opportunity to come on the podcast and uh yeah, this questions. is a great podcast for you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's why we're continuing. That's why we're moving forward. Yeah. All right, man. All right, guys. Take care. Tune in. Goodbye. <laughs>